I'm real excited to jump into the scriptures with you uh, this morning. So if you have a Bible, you can open that up to the book of Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel. So that's later in your Old Testament, flip around there and you'll eventually find it. You got a few minutes uh, before we read it, but uh, Ezekiel's where we'll be. If you wanna use your Bible app, completely fine. And we'll also have the verses uh, on the screen behind me. Um, But I'm excited this morning to be continuing in our series that we've been in for several weeks now called King Jesus. And if you remember, this is a sermon series that we've broken up into four chapters because it's a really long sermon series. All right, so we're finishing up today chapter one of this sermon series, a chapter that we've called The King Rejected. Uh, Because this whole chapter has been looking into the Old Testament and studying why did God create us? What did God create us to do? Who is God anyway? And studying the fact, as the Old Testament shows us, that we have rejected this king. That's what this chapter has all been about. And so through this chapter, what we've been doing is building a theology. All right, just these simple statements about what we believe about God and what we believe about ourselves. So we've been doing a new statement every single week just as a way to remember and summarize everything that we're learning. So what I wanna do real fast, because we're at the end of our chapter, so I just wanna do a bit of a recap for us. All right, so we began this chapter, our first sermon, we began it with this statement. I'm gonna put it on the screen behind me. I want you to read this out loud with me. You ready? Here it is. In love... God created me to not be the center of my story. It's an interesting statement. But what we're saying here and what we learned is that God created us to be image bearers of God, not not of ourselves. We were created to live our lives with God at the center, with his glory as the motivation, the end goal of everything that we do. And that's how we were created, image bearers of God. But then we learned, instead of submitting to God as king and living our life under his rule, we rejected God and his rule in our life. So this is our second statement. Read this out loud with me. In sin, I have abused God, creation, and others in order to be the center of my story. Right, The essence of sin is that instead of our hearts being bent toward the glory of God in everything that we do, we actually now see God. We, we see all of the things that God made and we see other people as things that we can use or abuse for myself to, to get what I want. Right? So our, what we discovered in our second sermon is that our hearts are sick with this manipulative selfishness that that makes everything that we encounter in life about ourselves. Um, To illustrate this, uh, the old English Baptist preacher, Charles Spurgeon, he used to tell this story, if you've heard it before. He used to say, once upon a time, there was this gardener. And this gardener grew this carrot, and it was the best carrot that he ever grew. 
It was large and it was perfectly shaped and everything. And so this gardener decides to take this carrot and he wants to give it to the king, the king of his land. So he goes to the king and he says, your highness, I just, I wanted to bring you this carrot. It's the best carrot I've, I've ever grown. And just as a token of my affection for you and my loyalty to you, I wanted to, to give you this carrot. And, and the king takes the carrot and he's like, man, this is, this is so nice. Thank you. And the gardener's walking away and, and the king stops and says, hold on, hold on. You know, you've proven yourself to be a good steward of the land, a good gardener. I'm gonna give you this big plot of land over here. That can be all yours so that you'll garden it and steward it well. And the gardener was just overjoyed at this grace the king showed him, walked away joyful. But a nobleman overheard the conversation. And he, and he thinks to himself, you know, if he got all of that land for a carrot, I wonder what I could get if I brought something better. So the next day, the nobleman comes and he brings his beautiful black stallion with him to the king. He says, your highness, I just, this is the best horse I've ever bred. It is gorgeous. And just as a token of my affection for you and how much I love you, I want to give you this horse. And the king says, great, thank you. And he dismissed him. And the nobleman was perplexed. And the king said, hey, let me explain. Yesterday, the gardener gave me the carrot. Today, you gave yourself the horse. This is sin. Our hearts are bent towards self in the most deep, comprehensive way. Right, to dig into the heart and discover the depths of its selfishness, how cunning it spins things to our advantage, how meticulous its plots are to use God and to use others for our own benefit. It's stunning. This is why Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9 says this, says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it. And the paradox in all of this is that it is when our hearts are bent toward God and his glory and not ourselves where we find joy and peace in life. And it's when our hearts are bent towards self where we begin to find anxiety and suffering. And that's why this was our third statement in this series was this, read it out loud with me. There is no joy when I am the center of my story. There's no joy when I'm the center of our story. God did not design me to live this way. And the thing is this, God is not just asking to be the center of our story. He is demanding it with all of the power and the authority of the creator of the universe. And so this was our fourth statement. Read it out loud with me. God will be the center of my story, whether I like it or not. As an image bearer of God, it is sin to rob God of his glory and give it to ourselves. One theologian calls it cosmic treason. God is holy and he will vindicate his holiness in our lives. God will demonstrate his holiness in our lives one way or another. And so it's right here um, that I haven't finished my recap yet, but it's right here that I want to jump in to our text as we're thinking about the holiness of God, how we have rejected him, and how he will vindicate 
his holiness. It's, it's here I want us to read from Ezekiel. So we're going to be in Ezekiel chapter 36, if you're there. And I'm just going to read two verses for us for now, and then we'll read a little more later. But Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 22 and 23. Here's what the word says. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness through their eyes. So let's just stop right here for a second. Let me give you some context so you can understand what we just read. This is God speaking to Israel through his prophet Ezekiel. In 597 BC, the Babylonian Empire under the King Nebuchadnezzar came and invaded Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. Invaded Judah. And they carried off with them thousands and thousands of Israelites as their prisoners. So thousands of these Israelites went into exile, into a different nation. Ezekiel was one of them. And so Ezekiel's prophecies are to this group of people, the exiles, and he's explaining to them that it was God who allowed the Babylonians. Actually, he would say it was God who sent the Babylonians to punish Israel because they had profaned his name. They had rejected God as their king. So if you think about the passage we just read, God is announcing through Ezekiel here that he is about to act, that, that he is going to vindicate his holiness and that what he is about to do is not for the sake of his people, but for the sake of his own name because his people had profaned the name of God among the nations by rejecting him. So what is God about to do? I mean, he already allowed the Babylonians to invade the promised land and carry them off into a foreign land, into exile. I mean, that was akin to being kicked out of the Garden of Eden again. Was that not enough to vindicate his holiness? Or think about our own lives. Uh, we've all rejected God as our king we have lived for ourselves and not God. Take a minute, just do this exercise with me. Think about your life right now. Think about what you are most ashamed of. Maybe it's one of those dark moments or one of those secrets, one of those skeletons in the closet that makes you feel the most unworthy of God's love. The thing that makes you feel the most dirty, 
ashamed, unlovable. Maybe it was that moment years ago at the abortion clinic. It stayed with you. Maybe it was that moment when you were with that person and you took your clothes off and you regretted it. Or that moment for the, you just went to that place on the internet for the thousandth time and you don't know how to stop and you feel so small and out of control. Or maybe it's that moment when you lost your cool again at the people you love and you don't know why you do it. That moment where you said something to your son or daughter and they stormed out. The relationship's never been the same. Vice versa. Maybe it's all the debt you're in right now and you don't know how to stop spending. Maybe it's just you're so ashamed of the way your body looks. Maybe it's you can't stop lying to to cover your secret addictions. Maybe it's all the secrets that you're holding on to now and you're so determined that nobody will ever find out. I, I don't know what it is. But in that, what does it look like for God to vindicate his holiness in your life, not for your sake, but for the sake of his name? Because in your life and in my life, his name has been profaned. What does that look like? Let's read the answer. Ezekiel 36, starting in verse 24, I'll read through verse 30. God says, I will take you from the nations that you were exiled in, Israel, gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'm going to remove that heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all of your uncleanliness and I will summon the grain and make it abundant and lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant, that you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Picture these two scenarios. Out of these two scenarios, which scenario gives God more glory? Which scenario 
will give God more praise, will cause people to fall on their knees before God and worship him and him alone. Which scenario will do this more? Here's the first scenario. We sin against God, we reject him, we profane his name. And God rightfully and justly condemns us, cuts us off, punishes us for all of eternity. It's one scenario. And for many, this will be their end. For many, this will be their end. But think about this scenario. We sin against God, reject him, and profane his name. But there are some who humble themselves before God. Instead of God punishing and condemning that person, he says, I'm going to to send a substitute And they're going to take all the condemnation and punishment you deserve. And for you, what I'm going to do to you is I'm going to transform you. I'm going to change you. I'm literally going to take that heart out of you that was bent towards self and against God. And I'm going to put inside of you a heart that is bent towards God and not towards yourself. A heart that is humble and soft and warm and desiring to make God the center of your life. And so that person in this scenario lives the rest of their days in in endless gratitude for the grace and the mercy they have received because they know what they deserve. And they also live the rest of their days seeking to glorify and honor God with everything that they do. Because their heart has been changed. Which one gives God more honor and glory? Which one causes us to look at God in awe of what he has done? Which one causes us to praise his goodness and his character? Which which scenario will cause the fame of God to spread? Which scenario makes our God distinct from all the other false gods and religions in the world? Now here's the deal, God will be glorified in every one of our lives, every single human being. God will be glorified through one of these two scenarios. God's not gonna use just one for everybody. Everyone will glorify God through one of these two scenarios. But he is far more glorified. His holiness is far more vindicated when those who used to profane his name with their life are transformed into people who center their whole lives on him. Last week, we studied how in our sin, we are spiritually dead, unable to turn to God and unable to change our ways. We are stuck in our sin, meaning there is no amount of willpower, there's no amount of good behavior that is going to change our state before God. And so that's why we said that the only appropriate response when we are made aware of our sin and our state before God is is fallen humanity was this, and this was last week's statement we did. Say it with me. I am lost, I need help. That's the only appropriate response. God, I'm lost. I I cannot change my heart. I need help. I need you to intervene in my life. And so last week we looked, and we studied Isaiah 53, and we looked at how God intervened 
by sending a savior, Jesus, who would bear our iniquity and make us righteous in the sight of God. As Ezekiel says, we need to be washed and cleansed from our uncleanliness. But here's what I want us to see this morning is that forgiveness from our sin is not the only thing that we need to be reconciled to God, but we also need new hearts that love God. We need our sin to be dealt with, and we need our heart to be transformed. And this is why the final statement for this first chapter of our sermon series is this. Say it out loud with me. My heart is sick. I need a new heart heart. Our hearts are where all of the desires and motivations in our life exist. It's where they're housed. And our hearts are sick because our hearts are stuck in this place when all of our desires and all of our motivations are opposed to God. Just like that nobleman in the story that I told, we can act like we love God but our hearts are just trying to manipulate God. And this morning, I want us to understand the fundamental difference between a heart of stone, as Ezekiel calls it, and a heart of flesh. And this is important because it's easy in our heads to say that we have faith in Jesus. It's easy to say that with our mouth, but a true belief and trust in Jesus is manifested by a fundamental transformation of the heart. So here's the difference I want us to see this morning. A a heart of stone is dead and stubborn, and a heart of flesh is alive and surrendered. That's what I want us to see this morning. Let's break those down. A heart of stone is a heart that is dead, while a heart of flesh is a heart that is alive. Uh, In Ephesians 2, Paul uses this same language of dead and alive. And I want you to look at how he describes someone who is dead. So I'm gonna just read a few selections out of verses one to three, not the whole thing. But this is what Paul says. He says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Look at this. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So you can interpret it as that, carrying out our own selfish desires, what we want to do, and opposed to what God might be calling us to do. So, so Paul says to be dead is to be controlled by your own selfish passions and desires. The desires and motivations of your heart, they, they're not from God. A heart that is dead is a heart that's comfortable with sin. And a heart that is alive is not indifferent to its sin. I want you to look at this. Look at uh, how Ezekiel describes this in verse 31. Ezekiel 36, verse 31, look what he says. So this is after you've been given the new heart. He says this, then you will remember your evil ways before and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations. This is, that's strong language. But if the heart that is alive is a heart that hates sin, loathes sin, as Ezekiel just says, then the heart that is dead, 
feels no remorse for their sin. They're comfortable with it. The heart of stone loves sin and the heart of flesh hates sin. It's just a fundamental difference here. I'll never forget uh, several years ago um, this, this one fight that I had with my wife. And I didn't tell her I was going to tell this story. But it makes me look bad, not her. Now, I, I don't have a temper. Um, usually when I get really upset, I'm not tempted towards rage. I'm tempted towards shutting in and just going silent. All right, that's kind of what I do. And I completely forgot what we were fighting about, but we're in this argument. And in the middle of this argument, I uncharacteristically snapped at her, said something that was designed to hurt her, ran out of the room and slammed the door. And that's unlike me. Normally, I'll just shut down. And I went into the living room and I sat on the couch, all fuming. And then all of a sudden, I felt just this guilt, this regret, this shame. I mean, I could not believe that I treated my wife that way. I hated the fact that I treated my wife that way, so much so that I immediately stood up, I went back in the room, I got on my knees before her as she was sobbing and begged her for her forgiveness. No excuses, like that was wrong. There is no reason why I should have acted that way. And so here's why I tell that story. Here's one way we can test to see if our hearts, test our hearts to see if they're made of stone or if they're made of flesh. When we are made aware of our sin, especially our sin against God, do we feel a sense of regret and hatred for our sin because we've sinned against God, the God who's pursued us, the God who has saved us and rescued us and given us life? And and, and does that feeling of regret cause us not to run from God by making excuses or trying not to think about it, but to run to God, acknowledging our sin and seeking his forgiveness. See, having a heart of flesh that hates sin doesn't mean we have hearts that never sin. It means that we have hearts that anguish over our sin. Do you get that? Having hearts of flesh does not mean we never sin. It means we anguish over our sin, and when we're made aware of it, we run to God because we know that we have a God who is eager to forgive us when we confess our sin. Paul says later in Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 5, he says, But God, being rich in mercy... Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And so this this is why our kind of next statement here, a heart of stone is a heart that is stubborn and a heart of flesh is a heart that is surrendered. A heart of stone is hard, immovable, stubborn, set in his ways, and it's prideful. It's not open to instruction or correction or to the possibility that it could do anything wrong or believe anything wrong. The heart of stone always has an excuse, it always has a defense. It always has some explanation for its ways. A heart of stone will never validate hurt. 
it will accuse you of misunderstanding. A heart of stone will never seek to understand. It will gaslight you and make you think you're crazy for what you think. A heart of stone will always play the victim and blame shift to others and never see themselves as capable or wrong. A heart of stone will never hear correction. It will blame your tone. A heart of stone will never admit that they need to learn and it always sees itself as more enlightened than others. A heart of stone will never admit the need of a savior and it's petrified of ever being caught or found out. But see, the, the heart of flesh is surrendered to God. It's made of flesh. It's warm. It's moldable. Look at what Ezekiel says in verse 27, 36 verse 27. He says, he says, I'll put my spirit within you. Look at this. And cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Jeremiah says something very similar in chapter 31, verse 33. Jeremiah says the same thing. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my people. See, because the heart of flesh is a heart that is surrendered to God, it is a heart that desires to live not according to its own desires, but according to God's, with God at the center. A heart of flesh is willing to surrender its desires in ways in order to live out God's. It's willing to receive correction. It's not surprised when it needs correction because it's humble. Heart of flesh is not surprised when it sins. The heart of stone never sins. It's moldable, it's teachable, willing to acknowledge when it's wrong. And most importantly, it's not afraid to be weak or wrong because it finds its strength in the righteousness of Jesus. The heart of flesh knows it has nothing to hide because God sees all and at the cross, God forgives all. You know, one of the joys that it has been to be one of your pastors here at Grace Hill is to watch many of you have a heart that is moldable, made of flesh and humble, and make hard choices and sacrifices because you wanna honor God with your life and you trust God for your joy. I have seen people in this church leave long-term relationships that meant a lot to them because they knew the relationship wasn't pleasing to the Lord. And instead of being stubborn and resisting God, they trusted God with their joy. I have seen husbands confess hard things to their wives and all the risk that's associated with that and seek to embark on the journey of earning trust back, believing that living in the light is always better than living in the dark. I have seen wives forgive even when they did not want to and they were deeply hurt because they believe that forgiveness was purchased at the cross. And they believe forgiving as Jesus forgives is more honoring to God than becoming bitter. I have seen people with addictions decide that it is better to fight their addiction in community rather than by themselves because they hate their sin so much and they love God so much that protecting their ego wasn't worth it anymore. 
I have seen people sacrificially give of their time and their energy for this church without complaining and serving with excellence and enthusiasm because they want to surrender their lives and their lifestyles and their time and their plans to God and because they believe that God is doing a work here in planting this church, establishing a gospel preaching church here and they know it's worth it. And so when we talk about a heart of stone in a heart of flesh, you can see that it's easy for someone with their mouth and with their head claim to have faith in Jesus. But the true question is, what is the condition of the heart? Because the heart that understands its sin, it trusts in the cross it desires to sacrifice their own desires to follow Jesus. And so let me ask you this question. Let's all ask this question. Do I hate my sin? And am I surrendered to how God wants me to change and grow? Or am I not bothered by my sin? And I'm not really that serious about how God wants me to change and grow. That's the fundamental difference between a heart of stone and a heart of flesh. And here's the good news this morning. That God is the one who does the work of taking out that heart of stone and putting in that heart of flesh. That is not something that you can accomplish on your own. Reading books, getting out of bed super early in the morning, going to a lot of church services will not perform that heart surgery. It is literally an act of God. The person who is aware and anguished by their sin agrees they deserve God's judgment. Does not question God's ways. And places their trust in Jesus and his death on the cross and his resurrection as the only means through which they can be right with God, that's the person that God will take out that heart of stone and he'll put in the heart of flesh. He will vindicate his holiness in their life through transforming them. But the person who's indifferent to their sin, the, the person who wants to create God in their own image by picking and choosing what they believe. Who likes to judge if God's ways are good or not. They don't surrender. That's the person that God allows to continue with the heart of stone. He will vindicate his holiness in their life if they never repent through judgment. So my question for you is, what is the condition of your heart? Where is it this morning? Because if you want God to do this work in you and you've never trusted in Christ, that's something you've never done in your life, you've never called upon Jesus as your savior, all it takes is you being able to say two simple things in the most genuine place of your heart. The first is this, I am lost and I need help. I am stuck in my sin and my only hope is the forgiveness that can only be offered 
by God in and through his son Jesus as he died on the cross to pay for my sin. That's my only hope. I am lost. I need help. Jesus, I need you to intervene. And then the second is this. My heart is sick. I need a new heart. I need God to change me because I can't change me. And if that is something that you are feeling in the depths of your heart this morning, yes, that's where I am. I just encourage you, when our service is done, we're gonna have prayer ministers up in front of this stage. Come forward, and one of us would love to pray with you, to process through that with you, answer any questions you might have. But come forward and pray pray with us. But what about those of us who maybe, yeah, we have, at least in our heads, said we've trusted in Christ, We've called ourselves a Christian, but the heart of stone, that kind of sounds more like me than the heart of flesh. None of us are going to be perfect and without sin until Christ returns and deals with sin once and for all. But Jesus does say that you will know a tree by its fruit. That the person who has trusted in Christ has been given a new heart and they will display evidence of that new heart, fruit of that new heart. So my question for you is this. When you did trust in Christ, when you did pray and ask Christ to save you from your sin. Did you genuinely in your heart cry out, I am lost, I need help? Did you believe that? Did you believe that you were sinful before God and there was nothing you could do about it? And did you pray, did you cry out in your heart, my heart is sick, I need a new heart? Did you know that you need to be changed and that things in your life would need to change and you need God's help for that? Was that prayer you prayed coming from that heart? It's way easier than we think to claim faith in Jesus with our mouth and our heads, but to reject those statements in our hearts. I think it's possible, especially living in a culture where we are free to worship any God that we want. It's a blessing to us. But I think it's really easy. I think it's really possible that a lot of professions of faith in Jesus are like the nobleman bringing a horse and offering something to God, but they really had something else in mind. And maybe this morning is the morning where you say to God, I'm lost and I need help. And I'm embarrassed to say that because I've always called myself a believer. My heart is sick, God, I need a new heart. Maybe that's you. Guys, I prayed that prayer after I became a Christian. Or maybe this week is the week that you sit down and do that as you process this and you need to come in and meet with one of us, one of your pastors. Let's talk through this or meet with a trusted friend in the congregation or someone, your, your spouse or someone and just talk through this and say, I, 
I think I need to say those things to God. I need a new heart. Because guys, there is grace and there is forgiveness waiting for you if you'll humble yourself and allow God to take out that heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And so let me pray now that God would do that work amongst us that needs it. And that God would encourage those of us that he has done that to, that we would continue to follow him humbly, faithfully, and surrendered. Let's pray. God, this morning I have no idea how this message has hit different people in the room. God, for those people who have, yes, they had that moment in their hearts where they cried out to God and said, God, I need your help. I'm lost. I need Jesus to save me. And for those people who have cried out, God, my heart is sick. I need you to change my heart. God, I pray this morning would just be sweet encouragement to their souls. That they have a heavenly father who desires not to vindicate his holiness in their life through condemnation, but he desires to do it through transformation. God, would you encourage their souls this morning? But Lord, I pray for those in the room who may be thinking to themselves or something heavy in their heart right now where They've never cried those things out to you, never really believed them, but, but maybe right now they are starting to believe it. And they're afraid to say it. God, would you meet them with the most tender mercy and grace right now? That as they come before you, Lord, they are not going to encounter a father who is angry they are going to encounter a father who has been anxiously waiting for them. Pray that that tender moment would happen now as we sing to you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.